Better call Paul. That's the name of our next increment of series of teachings. And I will be hitting Romans, that doorstopper of a book and that tradition stomping book by Douglas Campbell was almost, I got 33 pages left in it out of 936. And I did a lot of homework while I was away. I read books that were critiquing that book so I could get into a reply and objection But I got my own thoughts on this thing, especially after four and a half years with you in the book of Revelation. And I've decided to call it Better Call Paul. Some of you might understand where that comes from. There was a a very popular series on television. I didn't watch it, but I I started out watching it and lost interest because almost everything bores me except theology and New Testament lately. But it it was called Breaking Bad. And it was about two men who had a methadrine laboratory, also known as a meth lab. And there was a spinoff series from that because they got in legal trouble a lot and they called a lawyer named Saul. And so the series that spun off from that is called Better Call Saul. And I thought, maybe we better call Paul, especially to see what he really was saying in Romans. I was reading that Friedrich Nietzsche, when he received Darwin's origin of species, what he predicted, and by 1874, Darwin was paid the ultimate compliment to the highest praise with the most important declaration of philosophy in the 20th century, the 19th and 20th century, God is dead. Nietzsche predicted that within a generation there would be a rise of barbaric brotherhoods, all but naming Nazism, fascism, communism, and that there would be wars that would be fought that would be unlike any other wars ever fought against these ideologies. And this would all arise from the philosophy that man is not significantly different from animals. And he predicted something else for our century. He said something far worse is coming in the 21st century as a result of people believing that there is no significant difference between man and animals as brought about by Darwin's now being now discredited theory, of course, that the 21st century would involve the eclipse of all values. Now, The church hasn't helped out too much on this because there is a rendition and a reading of Paul's gospel, for example, that has put forth the idea of a conditional contract between God and man and that God will do this if you do this. And the idea of a God of retributive justice has been presented through Christendom and through wrong readings of the scripture. And so whatever you think about this so-called historic moment in our national history, one thing is apparent to me, and I've tried to remain as apolitical as I can, but the decision that was made, the election that was made, seems to be very strongly aiming at a direction where we have freedom, religious freedom at least, prolonged. And I think this is a divine opportunity for the gospel of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ 
to gain a true foothold on our culture and on our country and on these next generations. This is the time. This is an opportunity. So I take it as an urgency to get this message out. There's never been a time like this in terms of theological and New Testament study. And so better call Paul. And today I won't be having notes on this whole series other than maybe a couple of outlines that I'll be thinking of, themes that I'll be thinking of. They will not be on the website, therefore. But there's several shocks to the system that you're going to have to experience along with me. I've experienced a few of them. Shocks to the system in reading Paul apocalyptically, as we promised that we would do. Reading Paul's corpus of scripture as apocalyptically means that it is revealing of an unconditional soteriology, a salvation that is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Is the gospel all about God's son? Is it all about Jesus Christ? Is it truly Christocentric or is the atoning work of Christ something we marginalize and say that, well, God just did that to protect us from his wrath, which is the going idea. So we're going to read Paul, and I'm, not, I'm going to be mainly proclamation and then some explanation, but it's going to be a preaching and a proclamation of the word of God. And the triune God saw an opportunity to manifest unconditional grace So they decided to call Paul. I'm speaking of better call Paul from the Trinity's standpoint, from the standpoint of the triune God. If we're going to demonstrate this unconditional grace and this salvific power, let's call Paul. Saul, also known as Paul, because he's the most vehement enemy of the church He is the chief of all sinners, and let's reveal that salvation is unconditional in his case, and that salvation is not granted to Christians on their condition of meeting faith in Christ, faith in God, or faith in the gospel, but that salvation is an unconditional event of unconditional grace and unrestricted love, which moves you from being outside of Christ to being inside of Christ and then looking retrospectively at where you came from. The whole reading of Romans since the Reformation and before the Reformation, and unfortunately the reading that was perpetuated when the Puritans hit the shores of the United States of America, is a reading that needs to be radically revised. I mean radically revised. Paul's epistle to the Romans is what I call a dialectic of contradictories. It's a rhetorical epistle, And it is a dialectic of contradictories. There's two kinds of dialectics we studied in Revelation. There's a dialectic of contraries where you have a viewpoint, a position, and a counterposition. And then maybe you have a middle term where you reconcile the two. But a dialectic of contradictories has no reconciliation. And in the book of Romans, 
There is a presentation of a gospel that is completely irreconcilable with Paul's gospel. And Paul presents his gospel in Romans 1, 1 to 4. And there's some shocks coming here. They hit me. And I entertained the objections from scholars. And I've, I'm convinced, in this case of Douglas Campbell's view of Romans 1, 18 to 32, that it wasn't Paul. But it was Paul doing a parody of the turn or burn message by a famous Jewish Christian teacher that opposed his gospel. And in fact, much of the reasoning in Romans 1.18 to 3.20, all the way to 3.20, is a presentation of this other gospel, not Paul's gospel. Paul entertains a few things and throws in a few things. If you punctuate this, which Campbell has done, you see the dialectic. For example, in Romans 2, you read all about those who do good will receive glory and honor. Those who do evil will receive tribulation and anguish as if there's going to be this eschatological day of wrath. And that's not Paul speaking. That's the teacher that Paul is parodying because in Romans 2.16, he throws in, that's contrary to my gospel, which shows that all people will be judged according to Jesus Christ not according to their works, according to Jesus Christ, who summarizes all things in himself. And so that great turn or burn message that we have thought, many of us, I don't know if you have, many of us have thought is a preparation. It brings you into a desperation, so you need to call out on the Lord, and so God will reward your faith with justification. Furthermore, that's not what Paul is teaching. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The soteriology or the salvation offered in Romans is unconditional. Paul then starts with Romans 1, 1 to 4, as we're going to see today. Then he goes into 1, 16 and 17, talks about his gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And it doesn't necessarily say to everyone that believes, whether Jew or Greek, it says to everyone that belongs to faithfulness or the faithfulness of Christ. And then he says, for the righteousness of God, that's dikaiosune, is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness, meaning it's revealed by the faithfulness of Christ which saved people participate in that our faith is not the condition that we meet for justification. There is no condition that we meet for justification. It's an event of grace that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. I'm going to be showing these and I'll demonstrate what I'm proclaiming. I'll proclaim and then I'll explain. And Paul's an example of this. I asked the question of myself many times over the course of the past 40 years of studying Romans and other places. Why is Paul's own call and why is his own case not an illustration of what Romans 1 through 4 says is supposed to happen? Justification through meeting the condition of faith. When he was simply transferred suddenly on the road to Damascus, from being the worst of the chief of sinners and the persecutor of the church to being 
the apostle that brings this message of unconditional salvation to the world. Paul's case is a demonstration to manifest unconditional grace. So the triune God, if we want to humanize them a little bit just for the purpose of an anthropomorphism, we could say, well, how are we going to demonstrate? We've demonstrated our unconditional, unrestricted love in the gift of my son, the father says. How are we going to show this unconditional grace towards sinners? How about calling Paul? Let's call Paul. We better call Paul. Now, the Corinthians got into a lot of jams, had a lot of questions about idolatry, about eating food off of the idols, about marriage, about divorce, about all these things. And so they eventually said, we better call Paul. And the Galatians were hit with a false teacher. Obviously, we know that was another gospel. We don't see it as clearly in Romans, but there's another gospel. It's a dialectic of contradictories. So during the course of Romans, you see the total demolition of a gospel that you and I might have thought was the gospel. And then Romans 3.21 to 26, Paul begins to make the case. There is a righteousness from God, and righteousness doesn't mean justice. Righteousness, dikaiosune, means, and we'll see this unfold, the saving act of God in Christ. The saving act of God in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God is the saving act of God in Christ. It depicts the very unconditional soteriology that was Paul's message to the church and message to the world. Imagine if not only values begin to emerge, and they do. From this gospel, incidentally, we're going to find out that there is an ethical efficacy or an ability given totally by God's activity in Christians that fulfills ethical demands that cannot be fulfilled under any other means by man. We're going to find out that man is so incapacitated that the gospel can't be anthropocentric. Man is so incapacitated, listen carefully to this, that he cannot, and God does not expect man to look into the heavens and discern God as creator, as I once thought. It looks like that's what's being said, but that's the other teacher. In fact, Campbell calls him the teacher. He is a Jewish Christian teacher with an anthropocentric gospel. And he believes that we start on our path in a natural theology. I call it Nat Theo. There's Nat Geo, National Geographic Station. There's Nat Theo, natural theology. That man somehow is going to be held accountable. Now you look up into the stars and you see God creating it, don't you? And if you don't, I'm going to hold you accountable. And the wrath of God is going to be on you. I'm going to turn you over to reprobation and all these terrible immoral things that this preacher preaches on. If you're going to condemn certain things in society today, don't use Paul as the condemner because he didn't write or preach or ever teach Romans 118 to 32. It's a parody. And Paul sent Romans, the epistle to the Romans, to a church he didn't found, 
to a people that he didn't found. He said, I'm coming through Rome on my way to Spain. And he sent Phoebe with this. She was a deaconess, a servant. And she brought this epistle. And in all, by all accounts, I think what she was told to do is to present this epistle in a dramatic fashion. And that's the way they used to do it back then. That was their entertainment. They would present the gospel, present the epistles in a dramatic fashion so that she would have gotten to Romans 1.18 and imitated the Turner Byrne televangelist, the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. Probably did the voice with it along with it, you see. It was a parody. Because Paul says in Romans 1.17, The righteousness of God, God's unconditional saving act as the king of the universe in salvation is being revealed. And the word he uses is apocalypto. Paul's writing is apocalyptic, just like the apocalypse of John. It reveals Jesus Christ in his unconditional and universal saving significance. And the universal impact of the cross of Christ. This other gospel marginalizes or puts on the side the atoning work of Christ. And even says that's the way God protected people from his anger. By making it come on Jesus Christ. So he protected some people from it. And the rest he doesn't protect from it. That's a pathetic and not Pauline. We better call Paul and ask him what do you mean by the cross of Christ? What do you mean by the event of Christ? What do you mean by the Christ event, which not only includes his death, but presumes his incarnation as God and adds in the saving effect of his resurrection? It's not just his death that's saving. It's his resurrection. The event of the cross, I always do this in my my study. I do the cross and then resurrection and then ascension. There's a throne. And so this is the Christ event, the cross, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection. His resurrection is saving. Justification, as Paul uses it in Romans, doesn't mean a legal or forensic imputation of righteousness because you've met a condition called faith because the law was too hard to follow. Justification means divine deliverance. And so when you get to Romans 5.1, when Paul presents his unconditional soteriology and his Christocentric, radically Christocentric. It's amazing what people call Christocentric. And they adopt a gospel that's anthropocentric. They adopt a gospel that's human performance oriented instead of God's performance oriented. They're not Christocentric at all. It's just like people that call themselves grace churches. I got a kick out of that. We're a grace, we're grace men. We're grace church. They're no more grace than this teacher in Rome. So Phoebe would have presented this, and I'm sure she would have gotten very dramatic, and people would have said, man, that sounds just like the preamble of every preach, every preach sermon we've ever heard from this teacher. And Paul gets it on with this preacher and shows that his gospel is insufficient and wrong on every single count. And so... We've got some shocks to the system. 
My shock was Romans 1, 18 to 32. I always tried to figure that out, and I'll read it to you in a minute in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And I said, how come that doesn't square with what Paul's saying in Romans 5, 1? In Romans 5, 1, Paul says, therefore being justified by faith. That's what the translations usually say. But it's the faithfulness that's being spoken of here. The faithfulness of Christ that's being spoken of here. And it's being, it is speaking of the resurrection of Christ. For Romans 4.25 ends with, He was delivered up for our sins and resurrected for our justification. Therefore, being justified, you shouldn't even have a chapter division there necessarily. Therefore, being justified or delivered by the faithfulness of Christ, which was his resurrection, we have peace with God. That has nothing to do with us meeting the condition of faith in a contract and thus having justification or legal imputation of righteousness. That's not what Paul was saying. In fact, this justification theory is the conventional and traditional rendition of the gospel is dead wrong. I'm even entertaining a couple things about why does Rome, why does first John one nine, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why does that contrast so much with John saying in two one, I'm writing to you children so that if not to sin at all, but if any of you sin, you should know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the propitiation for our sins. It almost sounds like two different programs. Well, that's what we have in Romans, two different programs. One presented in Romans 1 through 4, where you see the case made by this teacher. It's amazing how few references there are to Jesus Christ himself in the teacher's gospel. And how radically all about Jesus, Paul's gospel is. Better call Paul. If we're going to call Paul and we're going to preach what Paul preached, we might not even be accepted by the evangelical establishment because they might not like, I like the shocks. Not everybody likes the shocks because I have a shock absorber. It's called the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to let you experience some shocks here, but I'll be the absorber of the shock, just like Jesus Christ absorbed the shock of sin for you. So Romans involves a dialectic of contradictories, an argument involving involving two irreconcilable versions of the gospel. Therefore, it's rhetorical and revelatory. It's a rhetorical and revelatory piece. And when I say revelatory, I mean, it's a presentation of God acting in Jesus Christ on behalf of humanity and all of creation without condition. Now, there's something that is sort of required once you're shifted from Adamic ontology, which is called sin, into Christ. There's something that is... Well, it's natural almost, and it is kind of expected, and that's gratitude and joy. And the faith that we exercise, so-called, is not a condition to be met in order for God to reward us with justification. The faith that Paul speaks about is a gifted quantity, and it's a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
that we are given. And so like the 10 lepers that were all healed unconditionally, Jesus didn't say we've been behaving lately. He unconditionally healed them, saved them from that terrible condition. It's a picture of sin. Leprosy is a picture of sin. And they went away. One returned with gratitude, and Jesus said, where are the nine? In other words, there is something that you kind of respond with. Once you've, been, once you've understood that now you're in Christ through an event of total unconditional grace rooted in God's unconditional love, and it's gratitude. We're not saved by gratitude, but gratitude is an honorable response to what we've been given. And the more we know what we've been given and it's been an event of grace, the more we are grateful. And then we're given the opportunity of participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So even though Paul takes apart this whole turn or burn message, he comes in Romans 6 through 8, Romans 6, 1 through 8 through 13 to show that there is an ethical efficacy associated with participation in Jesus Christ with a shared history of being crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him in glory, enthroned with him. And the realization of that becomes, gives an ethical efficacy that I think gives birth to transcendent values. So not only is Nietzsche rebuked, by us revealing that God is very much alive. But he's also refuted in that the 21st century may be the very century in which not only are values not eclipsed, but the values that people find in the true rendition of the gospel of Jesus Christ are transcendent values. That's where we are in history right now. That's why this is important in history. That's why we have to see the contradictory nature of these two gospels and distinguish the one from the other. Paul does it again. If you follow the continuity, do it on your own if you want. Romans 1, 1 to 4, where Paul lays the program out. 1, 16 to 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Therein, the righteousness of God, the saving act of God is revealed from faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness, to faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness in you. Christ's faithfulness, which was his obedience to the death of the cross, to faithfulness, which is your participation in Christ's faithfulness and self-sacrificing love. And then it says, for the righteous one will live by his fidelity or his faithfulness. Romans 1.17 quotes Habakkuk 2.4, which is the Old Testament prophetic text verse for Paul's gospel, not only here but in Galatians. The righteous one isn't you believing. The righteous one is Christ who lives. That means he's resurrected as a reward for his faithfulness. My righteous one, says God, that's Christ. And that's what's being revealed. But no, the preacher, the teacher, has another apocalypse, the wrath of God. That ain't Paul. First shock to the system, let the Holy Spirit absorb it. Romans 1, 18 to 32, ain't Paul talking. It's Paul parodying a recognizable form 
of preaching, which today we call turn or burn. Turn or burn. God is a God of retributive justice. Therefore, the cross is Jesus protecting you from an angry God. That ain't the gospel. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the way God completes creation. The way God redeems creation, redeems all mankind. For in Adam, it's true that all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. It's true that all sinned when Adam sinned. Being delivered by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing there about faith on purpose. Because faith is not the condition that God requires. It's not like God says, okay, try to live by the law, come to despair, realize you can't, and I'll give you an easier thing to do. Believe. You th- why do you think man can even believe? Why do you think there's a capacity in man? The way the false gospel says it is you recognize God as the creator, so you recognize creation truth, you pass the first meritorious test now. Because man has that kind of capacity, according to this guy. But according to Paul, man is totally depraved and totally incapable of recognizing God anywhere or in any way in creation. So it's got to be an unconditional covenant of grace. Not a contract bilateral, but a covenant unilaterally demonstrated, mediated by Jesus Christ, who incidentally made the decision for salvation for every man at the cross. So, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. It wasn't the day you got saved. It was Calvary's day. It was a day in April in AD 30. This is now. So my question is, and Campbell doesn't get into this. My question is, if it's unconditional, is it necessarily universal? Because if it isn't universal, then God, we're back to thinking of God as a capricious God, that he gives some faith, and he doesn't give faith to other people. So we're back in the old false Calvinism. That's not what Calvin ever taught. Calvin didn't teach double predestination at all. Calvin taught a, basically an unconditional salvation. But his students botched up the whole program. So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with two contradictory systems right within Romans. And therefore, that's why I always suspected that when I read Romans 11, where Paul just said suddenly, Romans 9 through 11, but who are you, oh man, who replies against God? So who is he talking to? He's talking to the teacher. A guy that might have been a little bit like James, the brother of the Lord. A little bit like James, who had at least in his early phases kind of had this other take on things. I don't think it was James, but the guy was famous, and they understood, well, that sounds just like his sermon. (laughs) Exactly. So Paul is presenting. This is why I think to begin this series, I thought of this. Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning fragile, delicate, like our bodies are susceptible to death or disease. Though we walk around in this fragile flesh, the weapons of our warfare are not fragile, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, 
and the demolition of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? And that's the real heart of this matter. The real heart of the matter is God, a God of retributive justice, or is he a God of limitless benevolence as manifested in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the faithfulness of his son, which is shared with all humanity? That's the big question. So this gospel of this teacher exalts itself against the knowledge of God's limitless benevolence, for God is love, and presents a God of retributive justice, a God of immutability in the sense that he's incapable of feeling or empathy or compassion. Or is God a God of unlimited benevolence? which he extends to all things and all creatures and all mankind. So I did jot down a few questions I'm going to ask during the course of this. Better call Paul. Does the gospel involve a bilateral conditional contract between God and human beings like this teacher says? Or does it involve an unconditional covenant of God toward human beings Mediated by the one mediator between God and human beings, the righteous one, Christ Jesus. And I'm going to do something I didn't do in the last series. I'm going to answer the question already. It involves an unconditional covenant by answering the question. More broadly, does the gospel involve a contract between God and human beings which demands human obedience under the threat of retributive justice? So is it Paul talking when he says to the one who does good, honor, glory, and reward await him? The one who does evil, tribulation and anguish. You know what I'm going to teach you in the gospel according to Paul? There is no final judgment of retribution, period, over and out. The judgment that would be retribution in the future already happened on the top of Skull Hill called Golgotha in A.D. 30. There is no retributive day of wrath in the future for anybody. It's according to the gospel. You say, how do you know? I called Paul. Now, when I say better call Paul, there's going to be somebody saying, well, he should have said better call Jesus. Okay. I'm, I realize I, I'm not Christocentric. If you call Paul, you're going to get the most Christocentric message possible. That's what I'm saying. So more broadly, does the gospel involve a contract between God and human beings which demands human obedience under the threat of retributive justice? Or does it involve a covenant based on God's unconditional and unrestricted love by which human beings are encouraged to be faithful, but it's the faithfulness that's desired is a participation in the faithfulness of the mediator, Christ Jesus. The saving act of God is being apocalypto, revealed. From faithfulness, demonstrated by Christ in the cross, to faithfulness, which believers participate in once they've been moved in an event of grace from sin into Christ. In other words, our faith is a faithfulness, a shared participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that looks back on what we've been saved from. 
Because now we've got new eyes to see. It's retrospective. More to the point, is the gospel all about Jesus Christ? Read the teacher and you don't even see Jesus mentioned very often. You see people performing. You see Abraham's supposed to be the paradigm of believing and being justified. And that's not what Romans 4 is teaching. Second shock to the system. That's not. Abraham isn't being presented as the pattern of belief unto justification. What do you think of that? I proclaim that it is not. Now I got to explain. Just call me Ricky Ricardo. I got a lot of explaining to do, but I'm proclaiming this gospel boldly, fearlessly, without qualm and without equivocation. And I believe that it's going to pull down strongholds that have made Christian values, really not Christian values at all, but an accommodation to the culture with a Jesus tag on it and a fish Symbol bumper sticker. That's not Christianity. So this thing, we're not going to escape this. I don't escape. We're not going to escape from here because we're going to see that's right. And we're going to say, yeah, you say that's right. Well, that's what the teacher taught, not what Paul taught. You go, oh, that's what happened to me. So is the gospel all about Jesus Christ and is his death and resurrection inclusive of all human beings or is Jesus Christ and the Christ event marginalized, set to the side and his death contemplated as a protection of some or all human beings from a wrathful and vengeful God. Either way, it's wrong whether some are protected from God's wrath by Christ's death or all are protected from God's wrath through Christ's death, are both wrong views of the atonement. So even more to the heart of the matter, are people delivered by God by meeting the condition of faith alone? Uh Uh-oh, now we're hitting something really at the heartland here. Melanchthon in the Reformation. Sola fides. Only faith. Faith alone. But is Paul saying that? Or is he speaking about the faithfulness of the righteous one by which he lives through resurrection? And by his resurrection, he delivers all mankind. What if that's true? It not only gives us eschatological assurance, it gives us ethical efficacy because we begin to participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which works by love. It's all coming. So even more to the heart of the matter, are people delivered by God by meeting the condition of faith alone? Listen carefully. Or are they delivered by God through the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ? There's been a hugely powerful case made for the word pistis Christu, the faith of Christ, as not being objective, faith in Christ, but the faithfulness of Christ. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said. He didn't say, I believed in Jesus Christ, and therefore I'm saved. He didn't say, on the road to Damascus, I came to the end of myself by trying to obey the law. The the law is bad. No, the law was good. He was blameless according to the law, according to Philippians. He 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 didn't hit that crisis point, I can't fulfill the law. He said, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. The faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I see nothing in there of Paul saying, I believed and therefore it was reckoned unto me to righteousness. You say, but you used to, yeah, I know. Did that hurt? Yeah. Hey, it turned my hair white. It was so shocking. Now, so... That's not far off from being the truth, incidentally. I guess the Lamb of God, his head and his hairs were white like snow. Never mind. Maybe God wants me to be like his son, the Lamb. I don't know. But are people delivered by God by meeting the condition of faith alone, and therefore Abraham being the paradigm of all that, which is not what Paul is teaching in Romans 4? Or are they delivered by God through the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ? Faithfulness, which is a metonymy for his obedience unto death, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement, all of which are saving event of God. That's what's being revealed, apocalypto. Under this question is another question. Is Christ's resurrection also saving or salvific along with his death? Theologically speaking, is God a God of retributive justice or of limitless benevolence? I'll tell you off the bat. Limitless benevolence, and I will proclaim him as such. Psalm 98, in fact, is a passage where Paul quotes in Romans 1.17, talking about God's righteousness being his act of delivering all creation. Now, in closing, since we're fresh from a study of Revelation, or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, where we discovered the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universal impact of his cross as the Lamb of God. Since we're fresh off that study, and our significant findings toward the end had to do with profound connection and affinity between Paul and John, I'm asking the question, is the Pauline corpus, meaning all that Paul wrote, and we'll start with Romans. That's been the desire of many of your hearts. Is the Pauline corpus... All of Paul's writings taken together, starting with Romans in terms of significance. Is it an apocalypse of Jesus Christ? And does Paul present Christ as John does in his universally saving significance with the cross, <clears throat> meaning an, a, a metonymy for the entire Christ event, universal in its redemptive, reconciling, and saving impact? Is Paul saying the same thing? Yes. Now I'll explain in the next months or years. So turn to Romans 1, and I'm going to just give you some tracks to run on exegetically. I'm not going to not touch the verses themselves. <clears throat> Romans 1, 1 to 4, Paul lays out his program, contrary to the teacher's program. Now the teacher is somebody who emerges from the shadows gradually, because it's a sensitive thing here now. These Romans... Jews and Gentiles had heard this teacher for quite some time. They heard about Paul. Paul is under the genius of the Holy Spirit's wisdom, presenting his gospel over and against what some of these people were being persuaded of. Just like he does in Galatians, only there, there's no theological thesis. There's just Paul pounding and correcting, talking about another gospel which is not a gospel at all. He's doing the same thing in Romans, only it's a lot more gentle. Romans 1, 1 to 4. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called. 
There's where I get better call Paul. Called an apostle. Called as an apostle. Let's call Paul as an apostle because he's going to change his mind. He's going to convert. He's going to believe. He's going to no. Let's just call Paul as an apostle. The persecutor. Let's make him an apostle. Set apart to the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets, most specifically, as we'll see, Habakkuk 2.4, in the sacred scriptures. Concerning his son, is the gospel all about his son or not? Paul's saying right here, yes, it is. Who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and was designated the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification. I'll explain that further. Now, Paul lays out the program, his gospel. Again, Romans 1.16, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed. This is my translation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who is faithful. And that means everyone who participates in the fidelity of the righteous one, as we'll see, Christ. The Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the dikaiosune, the righteousness or the saving act of God in Christ. You can see this in Psalm 98, especially in the LXX version of it in 97. Is being revealed. Apocalypto is Paul's writing apocalyptic. Yes. From faithfulness. Now we're going to show you that that means from Christ's faithfulness. The saving act of God is revealed from Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness is a metonymy or a figure of speech that rounds up the whole Christ event. His obedience to death of the cross, therefore his highly exalted through the resurrection and session, his present enthronement. And so the righteousness of God is the saving act of God in Christ is being unveiled, revealed, apocalypto, from faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness to faithfulness which is the faithfulness of the saints in Christ by participating in Christ's own faithfulness. That's a gift of faith. Just as it is written, Paul says, and here's his text verse from the prophets, the righteous one, that's Christ. In 1 Peter 3.18, that's Christ in 1 John 2.1. That's Christ in Acts 9 and Acts 22. The righteous one will live or be resurrected because of his fidelity, his faithfulness. The testimony of Jesus is the essence of prophecy. Now, let's go to the teacher's turn or burn preamble. Now, if you're going to use this, preachers, against these naughty people in our world today, don't say Paul said it. Don't say Paul said it. Romans 1, I'm going to read from the HCSB right straight through, 18 to 32. For God's wrath is revealed. Wait a minute. You just said your God's saving act in Christ is being revealed. Yeah, well, this other guy is saying something contradictory to it. This isn't Paul. This isn't Paul. It's a turn or burn message. Paul's parodying it. It's a very effective, dramatic device. It's called parody. Or it's called prosopopoeia. It's a blocked speech. It's like if some televangelist was preaching, turn or burn, you're all going to hell, only a few people will be saved. They preach in a certain way, even with a certain exuberance. And if I got up here and imitated their message, which I've been known to do from time to time in the past 38 years, 
mockingly, satirically, lovingly mocking the Turner Burn preacher. That's exactly. And Paul chose Phoebe probably because she had some dramatic flair as well as she was a faithful servant. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth as if mankind is responsible for suppressing the truth. (laughs) Mankind, that gives mankind a little too much credit. See, since what can be known about God and you have to almost see him is evident among them because God has shown it to them. From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what he's made. As a result, people are without excuse. Paul later on gets into the conversation. There's a little thing in 2.1 about you are also without excuse. And he's not talking to the Jew as if he's anti-Jewish. He's talking to a particular Jew who is the teacher that teaches this stuff. He's not teaching against Judaism. Never has, never will. He's teaching against not the Jew, but a Jew that's already taught this other gospel. It's for they knew God, though they knew God. That's epinosis, like they knew God totally, which they didn't. They didn't glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over, this is God's wrath, in their cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions for even their Females exchange the natural sexual intercourse for what is unnatural. The males in the same way also left natural sexual intercourse with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their persons the appropriate penalty for their perversion. And because they did not think it worthwhile to have God in their knowledge, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, disputes, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence. Do they? That those who practice such things deserve to die. They know this? Not according to Paul. They not only do them, they even applaud those who practice them. That's not Paul. That's a parody of a turn or burn sermon by a man identified as a Jewish, and if Paul's generous in some cases, Christian, a Jewish Christian, maybe. Where's Christ in all this? Nowhere. And this continues, and Paul drops in a few of his own sayings until we hit Romans 3, 9 to 20, in which all come under this condemnation. But then Paul answers in 3.21 and says, but now a righteousness from God, apart from works. 
Why? Because the righteousness of God is his saving act in Christ, his unconditional saving act in Christ. Apart from the law has been apocalypta, revealed. And it is unto all those who are faith. In Romans 3.26, and I was instinctively, intuitively aiming at that. I don't know if you remember at the close of Revelation, I started hitting Romans 3.21 to 26 and seeing how profound that is. And I'm delighted to find out that's what Paul was saying. And there's nothing in there about justification by faith. It's justification by an unconditional act of grace rooted in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which is a propitiation made by faithfulness, a propitiation made by his faithfulness in his blood, another metonymy. To say that the blood is literal there is to say that to glorify something about Christ and disregard the rest of his humanity and his divinity. Blood, the blood there is a metonymy for the saving event in total. A propitiation through his faithfulness by his blood in which God showed clemency to sins committed before the cross and in our own time God is just while he delivers those who are of the faithfulness of Jesus. Romans 3.20. Where's justification by faith? Well, you say it's in 5.1. No, 5.1 is where Paul presents his agenda, 5 through 8. Chapters 5 through 8. That's Paul's gospel. And it starts with, therefore, being justified by what? The faithfulness of Christ. We have Peace with God. And that justification is through Christ being raised from the dead, not through you believing. He was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification, therefore being justified by his faithfulness. For my righteous one shall live because of his faithfulness resurrected. So I have to ask the question, when Christ was raised... Were we raised with him? And by we, I mean all. I say, yeah. But I got some explaining to do. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity, for even giving the tracks to run on today, as it were. A metaphor that we use almost too much, but nevertheless. We thank you, Father, for leading us into a series called Better Call Paul. Thank you that we've already endured the first shock to the system, which some are still reverberating from and will be for a while. Don't, that's normal. And it's normal that people say, I don't know if I buy this or not. Well, that's all right. We've got a lot of time together, hopefully. And so, Father, I pray that you will allow us to have our eyes opened as to the gospel of your Son, that we may realize, in fact, that it's all about Jesus and that we may be participants in his faithfulness, in a faithfulness that works by love, a faithfulness that leads to love and therefore to ethical efficacy that doesn't come by trying to obey the demands of a contract, but comes by a retrospective realization that we've been crucified with Christ and we can put off the old man and put on the new man who is renewed in righteousness. 
May this church be granted the gift of faithfulness more and more. And may this church be granted the gift of eschatological assurance, of assurance that no day of retribution awaits anyone. And that we may also be granted ethical efficacy in which we develop transcendent values and act upon them so that we may glorify you in our bodies, which you have purchased through the blood of your son. We ask these things and much more that we can't articulate, which can only be articulated by the groanings inside of us, of the Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of the righteous one, Jesus Christ.